0: soil youtube channel all right hello everyone welcome to episode 51 of uh, going live with good soil um and for people new you know we broadcast this live on twitter spaces and youtube live at the same time on our youtube channel so it's recorded on both sides so you can go back and listen if you catch us in the middle or something but uh Anyway, last week I wasn't here, and you had a guest host, Brad Ferguson, on. Matt, how did that go? Uh, Pretty good, yeah. Brad's a really interesting guy. He goes by both Brad and Bradford, so I never know what to call him, but I think Bradford's a cooler (laughs)
1: sounding name, so I usually go with that. Yeah, yeah, no, he was good. He was in Hawaii, so it sounds like he had some uh, audio issues on the the YouTube version of it, but it was all good on, on the Twitter stream, but... You know, he's he's been kind of like um, maybe not as OG of an investor as you going back to 2012 or something. But he's just been a very um, active member in the Tesla Twitter community for a long time, has some really good takes, I think. And, and he's kind of solid in the road. You know, he's not in Uber Bowl, Tesla territory, but he still just, you know, looks at all the data and, and becomes incredibly optimistic from that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I've been kind of, you know, Twitter friends with him for a long time. We've had some phone calls here and there. So it's nice to actually get him on the channel and have a, more of a kind of detailed chat.
0: Yeah, yeah, I met him at the TeslaCon event, and uh, he's a very nice guy, very easygoing, easy to get along with. I like him a lot. So um, I listened to it, and I thought you guys did a great job. So thanks, Bradford. If you listen to this, appreciate you coming on to guest host. And uh, so yeah, so let's get right into it. Macro markets, I guess uh, today is actually a very reboundish day. Um, Tesla specifically is up, you know, over ten percent, and all the EV. Electric vehicle stocks are up ten to fifteen percent. It feels like so. There's like a broad-based macro market rebound going on right now. Growth stocks and you know Nasdaq's up almost three percent. I believe. Uh, Yes, it's uh, after a three-day weekend and uh, sort of a you know some serious volatility last week. It feels like we're right back to where we were on like Wednesday before uh, the sell-off <laughs> on Thursday. You know, massive sell-off. So it's it's very emotionally uh, distressing at times. I mean, you feel good on days like today, but you feel twice as bad when it's down four percent. You know, there's like some study that says we feel twice as bad when the market goes down an equal amount versus how much you feel good when it goes up. What are your thoughts about this volatility, Matt, in the macro markets?
1: Yeah, I mean the it's it's been emotional. I think is a is a good word for it. I mean the the ups and downs have been super extreme in both ways. Um, you know, it's it's everything's just been hit so hard lately that you know that it it's not surprising to me that we we have kind of a, a rebound here. Um, you know, and the guys at Spot Gamma, um, I think they they kind of gave an indication that we might see this type of bounce. Um, uh, and then mm-hmm. it might be short, short-lived, frankly. So, you know, yeah. you need, and for you need people to that are, be guarded with your optimism. Real,
0: real quick, for people that are not familiar, Spot Gamma, they're sort of like an option, index options, niche expertise, and they give analysis on, you know, also stock options, but index options, they have a real niche in that analysis. And around the quarterly expirations, I think uh, their analysis uh, is probably – Uh, more relevant, uh, especially. So there was a quarterly expiration of options uh, last Friday. So anyway, go on, Matt.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the vast majority of the time looking at index options isn't going to tell you anything about where the market's going to go. But it just so happened that this past Friday was the biggest options expiration day uh, since I think it was March of 2020, which was like right in the middle of the the COVID dip. Um, And so, you know, you saw a a pretty nice rally after that. And and essentially what happened is there was a huge amount of um, put expiration yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Or yesterday on Friday. Um, And and so you had all these kind of negative delta dollar positions, which were closed out. And so, you know, you got like a chunk of notional value back. uh, And if you want to go and and kind of rehedge with another position, say, you know, three months out, well, you you can't get as much delta dollar exposure, you know, for something three months out. That's, you know, compared to one day out that that was expiring on Friday. So uh, just the removal of all of that kind of negative delta dollar exposure from the market uh, they were they were um, estimating could could uh, lead to a rally, and so I think that's kind of the the most logical driver that I can see of what's going on yeah. with markets today. Uh, yeah. But I mean, also things have just been hit so hard. It, it kind of like I think it's been a little bit too hard, and and a lot of really high quality stock names. So um, you know, I think it it might be reasonable just to to see a bit of a rally here. Yeah. What what yeah. are your thoughts? I mean, how much weight do you do you give to kind of the options expiration versus you know other factors
0: yeah i mean i think there's just not a like i think like you were saying in spot gamma's analysis is there's not a lot of uh money flooding back into the market for like buying stocks it's more like um a lot of hedges going on a lot of hedges being taken off and that's moving the market right now and you know the options expire a lot of these put options expired in the money the delta dollars you know uh Exposure is not re-upped for the next quarterly options expiration. You know, a lot of these uh, hedges are put on again for September. You know, the quarterly options for index options, that's what the institutions, that's what the big money uses for hedging, right? Because they're so liquid, you have a a higher multiplier for every, you know, index option contract versus a a ETF or stock option contract, for example, too. And you get broad based hedging against the macro market. And I think, you know, there's enormous volumes um, in these, and they actually drive uh, the market significantly. So um, that's my thought. And, you know, you might have had a number of these institutions kind of re up their their hedges for September expiration but then they pick lower strikes of them. they're not like they're not buying in the money puts for September expiration <laughs> they're buying out of the money puts again that are like 5 or 10% out of the money maybe 20% out of them I don't know what their it's probably all over the place but as the as the if the market creeps back down continue, continuously towards their you know at the money or, or t- towards their out of the money index option put options and then they suddenly become you know, close to at the money put options, then the market makers on the other side have to short a bunch of the index to stay delta neutral. And that creates a sort of an exacerbating effect on the market going down further. So it seems like that's been happening the last couple quarters. And uh, we'll see when it stops. Is it going to be another quarter of that? Um, Or are there enough people on the sidelines that find valuations so attractive that they just sort of flood into the markets enough to counteract that and the market kind of starts continuing up again um that's that's a trillion multi-trillion dollar question i guess right now
1: yeah yeah i mean this this past friday it was about 700 billion dollars of, of notional value of options that were expiring um wow. you know yeah. puts and so yeah it was you know two three months ago when people were worried about things they put on these these put positions and then as the markets went down you know those as you were saying but you know those became in the money puts and in many cases deep in the money puts and so um you know, when those expire, it's just like you can't go and put another $700 billion notional value of puts on for, you know, three months out uh, and do it with the same, you know, kind of a, um, for, for the same price as the options that, that you're that were expiring on Friday. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's I think it's a real question how much money is sitting on the sideline. I mean, a lot of the indicators I'm seeing are, are you know, like uh, I think Goldman Sachs had some note about um, like just kind of a record amount of shorts were put on by hedge funds last week. Um, yeah, so it's you know, there, there's certainly a lot of kind of potential bad news out there, but um, I mean, sentiment is just at like an absolute low, and so I wonder, yeah. like, th- to me, that that seems like a, a possible indicator that, that we've gone down too far, but I mean. I mean we we've talked a lot about how we're not exactly macro experts. You know, we we no. obviously have to dig into this stuff, but yeah, what what this whole downturn has is kind of um shaped my thinking is is like everything's like deep cuts across the board, but I think there's gonna be some of these companies that stay beaten down and, and probably die and never recover. And then yeah. there's others Rivian like lucid <laughs> Yeah, go on. <laughs> Yeah, I heard you cough there. Didn't quite hear what you said. <laughs> oh, yeah, Rivian um, Lucid, yeah, sorry. No, I know, I'm just kidding. Oh. Um, it wasn't funny, a funny joke on my end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but um, you know, like Tesla's, depending on how you do the math, could be trading at like a, you know, a 40 PE or something like that. And, you know, it, I, I just, I struggle to see a scenario where if they continue to execute operationally and deliver financial results, uh, like I think they they're likely to do, Uh, that they could stay down at that kind of beaten down level for very long. So I think we're going to, at some point we have to have a divergence of, okay, the, everything's been beaten down. Who's going to kind of, you know, re-rally to, to, you know, even to to higher levels, even if there is, you know, maybe they're not the pre-pandemic highs or whatever, but um, I I think we got some room to run potentially in, in some names once earnings start coming in.
0: Yeah. And the macro market gets stable. That's the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately it's the Fed and their language. We're hanging on to every word they say and the tone of Powell's talking about things. It's like I hate investing like this, where you have to really just like hone in on the Fed. And that really that's the that's that's what's most responsible for your four oh one K or your investment trading account right now is not picking stocks because most days it's like I look at my screen and all the stocks are red. Or all the stocks are green. It's it's <laughs> right. like it's 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 not like it used to be. We're in this weird time where we're just hanging on the word every word of the Fed, waiting for Powell to say whatever he needs to say to get everyone to understand. Like okay, the macro, the interest rates are stable. We know what's happening. Let's inflation is stable. Whatever it is, I mean, it, it's just right now it's so macro market driven it's, 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 it sucks to be an investor of stocks at this point. Like I'm not a a micro market investor. I never wanted to be, and we're kind of forced to try, try to be. And, um, there will be a time where this ends. Uh, I hope it's very soon. I don't know if it drags out like this for, you know, another few weeks or a few months or into next year. I have no idea. Um, that's, that's the, that's the hardest question to answer right now, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the Nasdaq's up almost three percent today. I mean it, on no news. And and like for the Nasdaq to move three percent on no news, like like that just never happened before, <laughs> you know? Yeah like, like it used to be like there'd be some crazy GDP number or something like that, or like every like all the, the yeah. major companies would come out with earnings that were like way above estimates, or you know, there'd be some sort of piece of like good news to drive a rally that hard. So uh, yeah, know, the, the types of movements we're seeing on no news right now are, are pretty astounding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to have the days where like half the names are in red and half the names are in green. You know, there's always lump baskets or industry, like a whole industry might go up, but a couple mm-hmm. other sectors or industries are down, you know, but we don't even see that anymore. It's like just everything's green or everything's red. Most of the time it's, it's just, it's frustrating. And Bitcoin, I mean, what surprises me the most is that you have, uh, you know, I I people lump crypto and Bitcoin together. I know like Michael Saylor's like, anyone who says Bitcoin and crypto together don't know what they're talking about or whatever, you know, yeah, for if you're a maximalist, right? But <laughs> unfor- the reality is Bitcoin is lumped yeah. together with crypto, they're highly correlated within each other. People think of them as a category in mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of ways. And so, um, what surprises me though, the whole crypto category is sort of so correlated with the with the growth tech stocks, and you know, um, I mean it's it's you, you would think like one of the biggest arguments for crypto all this time, or especially Bitcoin, was it's uh, an inflation hedge or it's uncorrelated to the market. It's like an uncorrelated asset, you know? Yeah. But um, it's not the case. It's just another speculative investment I mean, of some sort.
1: Bitcoin would be over
0: $100,000 or something right now if it really wasn't <laughs> yeah. an inflation hedge. You're like, oh, yeah. finally,
1: there's inflation. Like, you know, yeah.
0: moon, Bitcoin, but- this is what I was waiting for. <laughs> Come on, Bitcoin, this is why I got you. And now it's down. 70% or whatever, you know, from its high, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's disappointing as a crypto, I've had crypto, I've had Bitcoin since 2011 myself, and I've seen lots of ups and downs. And I thought maybe we were fine. It's always been very speculative. And it's not always correlated to the market, though. But now it's very correlated to the market, because it's become so much more mainstream, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't like that it's it's correlated now, because in the past, it was not correlated. Uh, right. But I also don't like that now that it's, you know, now that it's more mainstream, that it's also not an inflation hedge, you know, and um, that's, you know, that's why you buy gold. That's what my argument for owning some Bitcoin is the digital gold. And that's why people buy gold is because it's an inflation hedge. So I'm a little concerned on that. I mean, it's still very young. There's a lot of good use cases for Bitcoin, particularly all the other crypto. Ethereum has its own use cases. What are your thoughts on Ethereum, Matt? I know you follow Ethereum a little more closely than Bitcoin and what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, to, I mean, I'd I, I, like, you know, both Bitcoin and Ethereum in the longer term. You know, the, the thing I like about Ethereum and, and you, you could go way down in the, the weeds on this stuff, but yes, um, there, there's so much stuff that's essentially like being built on the back of Ethereum. So essentially like as a layer one, um, you know, crypto asset, they're, you know, building out the framework so that you can have kind of security and transparency. um, And then there's just a lot of super smart people that are kind of building applications um, on the layer two, where you can, you know, essentially use the security of of, of the layer one um, to, you know, do all sorts of like NFTs. I'm not super. But I think those are kind of dumb yeah. for the most part. There's probably some yeah. good use cases like for concerts and stuff, and like uh, musicians using them in, in the future. Um, but uh, like the 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 fact that you can you can do stuff so much more cheaply on the layer two, and there's there's all sorts of folks that are, um, you know, building really interesting things. Um, I mean, it, it kind of goes into this whole, like, I think DeFi is, is like, it's, it's broader than Ethereum, but I think it's mostly Ethereum, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. and, and so, but it, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the assets that are failing are kind of like centralized versions of things that are run, like claiming their DeFi. So yeah. it's, it's kind of
0: crazy. Like what Celsius was doing, I yeah. guess. Right. Yeah. How yeah. are they generating these like 20% returns if you give them your Ethereum to hold or Bitcoin to hold? Right. I always wondered that. And I it never felt a lot of people were like, oh, that's great. There's just the DeFi, it's the process. And they don't really get into specifics like mathematically to show how it's like, a and, it, and maybe it's very complicated. Not anyone can, but I personally never felt comfortable with all this DeFi stuff where you're like giving someone your crypto and you're getting a return for, you know, supposedly nothing, you know, and it just (laughs) seems so fishy to me from the beginning, all the DeFi stuff. Well, that should, like,
1: that's because that shows that you're a good investor because that sends off your spidey sense and says, okay, that doesn't sound quite right. And so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that has these crazy names that you've never heard of that it's very hard to kind of make sense of. Yeah. And the the pay-to-play stuff. Yeah. What was the other, what what, what was the... Axie yeah, that's over. was the
0: game? Axie Infinity. That was a huge yeah. thing, and I was never bought into that. I could see the excitement, but I just felt like the like a more complex pyramid scheme of some sort. You know, like you know a lot of these things are just pyramid schemes at the end of the day like they don't produce goods and services you know like a stock does you know like a business does that when you own a piece of a a business with a stock ownership so unless it's its own store value it's part of some virtual world we're all going to part be maybe Axie infinity if that was going to be like the virtual world that we are all are going to participate in in the future then maybe there's a grounding for what they're doing but if it's just like a one of these one-off video games that people are playing, it's nothing <laughs> su- super special. I don't understand how that potential – how that pay-to-play model can work out in anything unless it's like an actual – I think in Roblox, there's actually some kind of opportunity. Yeah. Like what do you build for – I was listening to an interesting podcast. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like some venture capital people. And what do you build first? Do you build – the the pay-to-play infrastructure that Axie Infinity sort of built first and built some moderate gaming experience, some like regular basic gaming experience. or do you build a fantastic metaverse gaming environment that everyone's drawn to and then insert a pay-to-play infrastructure within it? I think that's mm-hmm. the model. And I think if you do yeah. that, that order of operation that way, it will be tremendous. And so I could see, you know, Roblox potentially in the future having some kind of amazing economy in that way, um, because they're building out right now this incredible metaverse-like world for lots of young kids, especially, and they're all going to be growing up using this, and, and a lot of older kids are sticking with it, as shown on their their stats. So it's interesting to see how this is going to play out in the next five to 10 years. But th- there is something with the pay-to-play, is what I'm saying, but it, you know, yeah. it's, it's it, there's a lot of false flags right now with it
1: well there are i mean like it's probably a good thing because a lot of this stuff a lot of the pyramid scheme stuff needed to to get burned down like that's just like that's that's helpful and uh three arrows capital is like a very large crypto hedge fund that's sounds like they they were getting uh kind of margin called as they as you know these prices were going down and then they kind of like revenge traded like on the way down and got burnt even higher so then like all these um you know exchanges and and everywhere where they had their accounts all had these forced liquidations and these guys like kind of who were incredibly well respected within the space, uh, before this all happened, just like ghosted everybody and like, you know, went away. And so like, I I think the, the call for greater regulation that a lot of people are, um, you know, calling for now is, is going to be a good thing ultimately. Although I do think, I do think that's going to, uh, cut against the, you know, inflation hedge and all those other arguments. Yeah. Then, like, once it's regulated and once you get, like, like real blue-chip, like, institutional investors, not like these Wild West hedge funds that are kind of doing yeah. whatever they want right now with very little clarity, once you get, like, big money in there, they're going to be even more correlated to, to the stock yeah. market, honestly. Yeah, So, yeah, yeah Evan Glansman has a, a comment, or was it Breakfast Pizza, I think, in here that uh, Ethereum is centralized junk. Yeah, it was... Uh, breakfast pizza it's like i think there's there's a lot of centralized junk within the ethereum uh universe i would say but like ethereum itself it's very hard to call that centralized junk just because like you know Vitalik Buterin's by far like the most well-known, uh you know, like member of. He's like the founder essentially of Ethereum, and he's proposing all sorts of stuff that ne- never gets implemented. So like even he, who's like so well respected, can't
0: direct space, it. It's too big of a boat his- for him yeah, to control. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So you know I yeah. think they'll be successful with their merge, and I and I think you know there's a lot of misunderstanding in the space. So I'm I'm kind of bullish about that actually. And uh, hmm. you you mentioned actually, Emmett, that you can't really you know value these like actual companies but ethereum to me is, is interesting because you actually can do like a discounted cash flow on it uh just with their you know the, the gas fees that they're they're generating and and how that kind of flows back to all the ethereum holders so mm. um it's it's a little bit different than a it becomes a little bit like a you.
0: it becomes a little bit like an equity after the staking or something right that it, it generates yeah. some cash flow yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, so like the the
1: gas, and we we've probably spent too much time on this already. Yeah, but, you know, it's 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 yeah. it's interesting. So I think it'll make it. I think Bitcoin will will make it, and and I think it's probably going to be a good thing that a lot of the other projects died. And there'll be some projects like I I don't know what other layer ones might make it, but I think there's going to be a couple things that make it that have other attributes. But it's just a very we'll complicated space, and and I think it's hard to paint it with a broad brush.
0: Yeah, yeah. Still early innings of crypto. The category of crypto, I would say. Um, people maybe thought it was like middle innings, but maybe it's still like very early innings and the volatility is just evidence of that. So moving on to, you know, the transition, the Bitcoin impairment charge Tesla's going to have to take, I mean, it dropped to what, 17,000 or something over the weekend. I was camping. So I was out of, out of cell phone range, but I saw it had dropped ridiculously low on like Friday or Saturday or something. Right. It was like 17,000 Bitcoin and, and um that's a pretty big impairment charge now that is it gonna be like 500 million or something I don't know I mean it's around that yeah. right so yeah I think um if it is in the 17,000
1: range I, my understanding is and I've heard it described a few different ways and I'm not clear which way is right but I believe it's mm-hmm. actually ba- based on like the closing price at the end of the month uh, or at the end okay. of the quarter um uh, mm-hmm. but it, I've also heard some people say that it's actually based on the lowest price that Bitcoin gets to within the quarter uh, that's right so too yeah. if if it's if it's the latter then yeah that would be certainly more of an impairment charge uh probably a little bit higher than 500 million dollars I, I believe um because i think at like 19500 somewhere in that neighborhood it was 420 million
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um gary Blackett, had a nice yeah. tweet that, Yeah, that's off to him for flagging the 420 uh level <laughs>
0: um
1: so you know it, it's going to be regardless Close of, to 500 okay.
0: million maybe Close to yeah. 500 million is kind of four kind to of 500 of million
1: I'm ballparking. But I mean, yeah. it's a it's a non-cash expense. It's a it's a write down. Yeah. So like, I'm sure it'll you know cause some headlines. Um, yeah, it'll cause it'll, headlines. It'll be negative, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I think and Tesla investors need to kind of keep in mind like that, that really doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and again, I've said this before, but it just shows how stupid the accounting does is yeah. around this because you get marked down on the way down, but you can't ever get like marked back up on the way up unless you sell. Um, yeah. So to me, it's just like one of those accounting rules that doesn't make any sense. So um, I, I hope that changes eventually because it it yeah. just it, it's it's kind of what, silly how asymmetric it is.
0: Yeah. And did you see the Elon, uh, interview from last night with, uh, you know, I think, I think we talked, touched on it. We both listened to it with a uh, Qatari Bloomberg conference or something. And, um, I guess that was, he was mm-hmm. doing that at like, it must've been like two in the morning or something, Texas time or one, you know, he was doing it very late because they said at the end it was 3am New York time when they were doing it. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know. That yeah, Elon works all hours. Yeah. yeah, he's wearing a suit. I mean, he's showing respects. He called, you know, he he said thanks. Your high, you know, he said the appropriate language when he was introduced. You know that, you know, just giving respect to the uh, the group there. Um, do you think there's, and, and I think there was referenced, or, or do, you, do you think there's a lot, number of investors in that crowd that he needs to, he feels compelled to to show up for, just because they're part of the the debt backers of the of the Twitter deal. You know, I hadn't thought about that, that point, Emmett, but it actually
1: makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I think, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't love doing interviews. I, I kind of gather from when yeah, he talks about Yeah, two in the
0: morning that. too, yeah. <laughs> two yeah. in the
1: morning. And especially with like kind of traditional media outlets like that, you know, I think some of the, you know, fans who asked like new or different questions, I think he tends to enjoy those a little bit more. But like, you could yeah. just kind of tell from his demeanor that, you know, he, he wasn't loving some of the line of questioning around some of this. Um but yeah, I, I do think it, it probably makes sense that he would show that extra effort to to kind of get the the Twitter deal done. Um, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was really skeptical that he even wanted to move forward. But you know, after the the meeting he had with the Twitter employees, and then you know this yeah. this point you just made around this this Bloomberg uh, interview, yeah, I think it he's very clearly trying to move forward with it. in, yeah. in my mind, so I, he said I think there's
0: it's, it's interesting. Yeah, they asked him about it, and he said there's three issues that need to be resolved for the twitter deal to go through the first is the i think this is his kind of leverage that he's holding on to as long as he can is the percentage of bots you know clarity around how is is five percent you know what's the real number of bots how are we going to figure that out and i think i think he's look he's willing to kind of go past that if everything else works out but i think it's like a you know, one of his bargaining chips he's holding on to to potentially exit or just try to strong arm them for less of a valuation, which I'm not sure that will happen or not. But uh, the other two points was um, he's he, he's waiting for the debt to, you know, part of the acquisition to all get lined up and all the, the people yeah. supporting that. To, and that's what made me think of the audience there. And you know, I think there's some Middle Eastern people involved in that or groups. Um, and then. The third thing was the shareholder uh, vote. And then it's funny, just like five minutes before we came on here. So this was like, you know, a few hours after his comments, I saw the Associated Press report that the Twitter board is now asking all of the shareholders to vote. So they're trying to move this forward. The Twitter board hears those three things from Elon. That's probably the only communication they hear, and they're like, "Oh, let's just knock out that third thing right now, then." And they're probably like getting all the share because they're trying to get this done as fast as possible. They want to get that forty-four get that. billion valuation, yeah, you know, for sure in this market, you know. So um, I wouldn't be surprised with the shareholder vote very soon, and then it's just those two things. And uh, yeah, maybe this gets done by the end of the summer, you know, or sooner. Uh, we'll see. I don't think Twitter- Elon wants it to drag out for super long either. And, uh, you know, he just, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good kind of thing. And just, I think he sees a lot of good in being able to take over Twitter and Mm -hmm. reshape it for the future. Um, and you know, 5 billion valuation difference, you know, don't let that ruin the deal or something, you know? So that's what I'm thinking. Maybe he's thinking. You think he just to get it done would, would do it at the original price? I think so. I think so. I mean, I I think if push came to
1: shove, he would, but I I, I think he'll probably try to get it lowered a little bit and probably with the leverage of the lenders, that may be a good tool to say, hey, listen, I can't finance, you know, 54 or the 54 share price.
0: 44 billion or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I agree. He'll try, but I think when push comes to shove, he'll still try to do it at at the, like, if it's up to him, he'll still do it at that price but yeah he'll try certainly that's my thought yeah so yeah that's interesting we'll keep a close eye on twitter and that and, and going back to tesla um you know my full self driving i've had it for two two weeks now uh full self driving fsd beta sorry i shouldn't call it full self. fsd beta i've had it and it's <laughs> uh it's been really impressive i mean i was telling you matt yesterday some impressive feats it's done and driving in lots of uh, crowds of people and i'm nervous i'm holding it but it sees all the people and seems to interact with people's you know hand gestures on the road or like their body language of whether they're going to cross or not there's a little bit of a delay but it gets it right seems like but i'm still watching very closely um so i think it's really it, it reminds me a lot of when um H- autopilot first came out what was that like 2016 or 17 or something and mm-hmm. the first few times i used it it was very nerve wracking. And I was like, Oh, it's interesting. Maybe they get it better. Hopefully they get it better. You know, it's like cruise control, but not something you're really comfortable using passively. You'd have to watch it and be nervous. And so it reminds me of that. And then certainly not surely enough, like within a year or two, the uh, autopilot became so seamless that I'm like, it's so smooth. And uh, I think Elon even called it smooth as silk once. And that stuck in my head. It is like that, the autopilot on the, on the highway. And so Maybe it's maybe to me, it feels like it's only a matter of time, you know, a year or two at most before the FSD beta becomes smooth as silk almost for all the other driving. But I'm hopeful and uh, maybe it'll be much sooner. It seems like it's progressed a lot in your time of having it. Right, man.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was it was absolutely terrible when I first got it in October. And then, yeah, I think it was an update ahead in March, which it was it was just like 10 steps forward, like 90 percent of my issues were were gone. This last update though has been pretty bad for me, to be honest. Uh,
0: mm. for,
1: but it's you mostly our own
0: right? neighborhood. Yeah, it had, mm-hmm.
1: it's got this thing uh, which apparently was widely reported for some other people, but then it was corrected somehow. Uh, but where it would just like panic and turn off and turn the emergency flashers on and try to like pull over to the side of the road, it does that in my little subdivision like all the time. It, like if I'm just if I have a you know, ninety second drive to just get out to the to the main road. It'll, it'll turn itself off twice and just say, oh, autopilot can't, you know, uh, figure out what to do, basically. So it, it says like a system error. Yeah. Um, and so it's like it's strange because there's usually no issues whatsoever. And and I just I have a lot of issues in my neighborhood and like turning out onto my main road. I've got this, this left turn and it always wants to like, you know, turn left onto this busy road. But then it'll like turn into the shoulder and just start driving onto the shoulder on the other side. Yeah it's it's so strange cuz it's not that complicated bizarre. of a of a turn but then like the other day I was turning out of a like a super busy grocery uh, grocery store parking lot with, with like cars going fast both directions and we had to wait a long time to find a gap and the like the first second there was like a gap it just like accelerated very confidently perfect turn right into the road and I was like that was way more complicated than turning out of my neighborhood I don't understand yeah. why it like handles the complicated things better a lot of times than the the easier ones. So yeah, I'm kind of just looking forward to the next, next, uh, iteration. You know, I I know everyone's experience is different and that's that's something to be expected, but, um, yeah, right now it's the version I've got right now has not been my favorite.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one step backwards, two step forwards. You're kind of in, yeah, it's funny that your car has these kind of errors and mine doesn't, um, every car seems to be, you know, you think all the cars should be identical, but it seems like every car has its own little characteristics within the updates that, you know, give or take certain pros and cons. It's weird. Um, and you did some drives even with like dirty Tesla that like you guys are following each other and they behaved slightly differently in certain areas, I think. Right. So,
1: yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's strange. I mean, you know, you, there's, there's no accounting necessarily for why it chooses to do certain things, but you know, I mean, the thing I would say is it's really important to keep in mind the trend, and the trend is just a remarkable improvement from what I had, you know, nine months ago. I guess it was now since since I first got it. And so, yeah, I yeah. Think it's going to be the sort of thing that you they just keep knocking out more and more complicated things, and then you know you're going to have fewer of these, you know, two step backwards updates, and you know eventually, yeah, you know, it'll be unusual when you have an intervention. So how long that takes, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. I, I in my mind, I think getting to the, the single stack and then
0: iterating from there is going to be the most important thing. Cause they kind of are. You know, this- that reminds me of, you know, hmm. the, it, going to the single stack and it, it reminds me of when they got off mobile. eye. do you remember yeah. that? I don't know if you were there, but I they mean, had this mobile, eye, like very smooth highway autopilot driving. And then they decided to go fully, you know, get rid of mobilize stuff entirely and do it all themselves. And it was like, unsmooth for a little bit but sure enough you know there are certain cars that still had the mobile eye technology that were still smooth but the newer cars for like three or six months the autopilot was very rigid and like not great but then it got sure enough it got a lot better after that it like created a you know so i feel like this the single stack's going to be a little bit like that, like maybe a step backwards but it'll provide a, a base for it to really go progress much more over time that's my yeah. feeling
1: I kind of think there's going to be some step backwards which is why they're it's taking them so long to move to that. Yeah. Um so like it's it's kind of optimized to this, you know, local maximum like Elon likes to say. Um and that's kind yeah. of unfortunate, but I think the sooner we can get to that that, you know, version it was going to be 11 I think. I, they're probably on to like yeah. 14 or something now when when single yeah. stack finally goes out, but once they get to single stack and can start iterating and uh And the single that's...
0: stack just so people know, I think to me, I think that's just vision only everything's just all vision the same neural network for both highway and non-highway driving just like one continuous neural network vision only algorithm or program is that what your understanding sort of is yeah
1: well it is it is all vision only right now Uh, they they had disabled the, the radar but um like there's a different uh, software set that handles the highway driving yeah. versus like two different you
0: know, neural network yeah. softwares or something. Yeah. So it,
1: it should be one neural network that does, you know, city streets and highway, but also like parking lots and summon. Um, and yeah. that was one of the things they were like, there hasn't been an improvement to summon basically since two years ago or whenever the heck that came out. So it's yeah. still terrible. And like parking lots are still terrible. So, um, yeah. they need to kind of move to that. I, I think, um, single stack to, to make those improvements. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm very excited to see what that actually looks like.
0: Yeah. The reverse summon will be super cool. Like you go into a crowded parking lot. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, Oh, let me out. You know, I took my kids to a Dave and Buster's for their birthday last week. And it was like crowded parking lot. And you know, you have to find parking, drive around for a while. And it'd be so cool if it could just drop me off right in front of Dave and Buster's with my kids and we can go into it. And then my car figures out the parking situation by itself in the parking lot. That'll be, that'll be neat. That'll be very helpful. Well, you got to be very confident, you know, it'll be a while before, like, I'm not going to do it the first time, like the first few times I'll watch it very carefully and it'll probably be some bugs, but at some point we'll be confident with it. And, um, yeah, I think Gary Marcus, who we had on our interview and some other, uh, skeptics of FSD beta, one of their biggest gripes, I think seems to be that people are going to get so comfortable with it where suddenly there's going to be a spike of accidents and deaths, you know, more than if FSD beta didn't exist. I just don't see that happening. I don't know. I mean, the data will show, the proof will be in the pudding. But I think Gary Marcus said like he thinks, predicts in six months, there'll suddenly be a spike in, in auto accident deaths for people using FSD beta because people will be comfortable. I just don't see that being the case. What do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I saw a chart recently, which was, which was pretty informative. Um, I dig it up, but it would probably take too long. Um, but essentially, the, you know, the idea is as the software improves, then driver attentiveness will decrease. And so yeah. there will be uh, people are so panicked right now, essentially driving full self-driving beta. This is the argument of, of the Garys and, and other folks in, in the world um, that they're so attentive that they, they are more safe than a regular driver just because they're so attentive because they think their car is going to kill them at any mm-hmm. given moment. Um, which I think there's a somewhat reasonable argument for that. Um, I don't really completely buy it, but their, their, uh, contention, which I think, um, they're claiming as fact, and it's not true is that, um, as the software gets better and better, people are gonna be more and more lax. They're gonna be looking at their phones. They're gonna, you know, not pay attention and the, the software on its own will be less competent than an average human driver. And so that combination of bad software. that's good enough to get you comfortable will result in more deaths than the average human driver. Um, that's, that's their contention. I think it's an interesting conversation to have, uh, but I definitely don't buy it. And I, and I think it's, um, there's a claim of, of kind of moral superiority that a lot of them have that, you know, Tesla's being reckless by pursuing this. And I think they're not examining the flip side of that coin, which is if this software can save lives, it's actually morally, uh, objectionable to delay it or, or to, yeah. you know, slow the rollout of it. Um, yeah. so I think these, yeah. these counterfactual non deaths that don't happen because of full self driving beta are just swept under the rug. And, and so I think there's, there's a, a good conversation to be had there sometime. I think we'll maybe try to have someone on to, to discuss those options. A yeah. Little
0: bit. Yeah. And staying on Tesla, I mean, a big, um, uh, I see Chadwick had a question, something we wanted I wanted to bring up to you also. Chadwick said, what are your thoughts on China, Giga Shanghai delivering over 46,000 cars in the first 19 days of June? Um, So, I mean, I saw that report just like an hour or two ago on Twitter too. And, and that's a huge number of deliveries in just 19 days. Yeah, so there's 11 days left. And if that proportion continues, then what? that's like, 70,000 cars close to that for the month of June. I mean, that that's going to be a record. Uh, you know, as much as we're expecting a slowdown in Tesla's quarter to quarter delivery number because of the Shanghai shutdown, this has got to be really good news if Tesla delivers 70,000 cars from the gig of Shanghai in June. You know, so I don't know, that might counteract the negative perceptions of uh, the, the, you know, July 2nd you know, purchase and deliver production and delivery numbers um, that are going to be lower than last quarter. What do you think, Matt?
1: Yeah, I, I so I hadn't seen that report. I'd, I'd like to dive into it a little bit more. The, the first question that comes to my mind is, you know, it's it says delivering. So that implies that there's some, uh, you know, probably May production that was delivered as well. So I think yeah, it's, it's hard to necessarily e- extrapolate. It's not that you know they they produced and delivered forty six thousand cars in June, uh, so how much of that is just kind of inventory from May, which was delivered in June? I think that's a really important distinction before we get you know too carried away uh, with yeah. those numbers. Um, but I don't know. I I do I do have some optimism that maybe things aren't quite as bad as um, some of the doomsday. The Troy test light suggests. Yeah, I mean, well, he's like. I, I, his numbers seem very reasonable. Like when you go through the math and you go through the rationale of why he's, you know, uh, putting out the numbers that he's putting out, it, it it makes some sense. Yeah. Um. You know, but Tesla has surprised like, a so few times much the last several quarters. Um. That it wouldn't yeah. really surprise me all that much if instead of yeah. say two fifty they delivered two seventy somehow.
0: Yeah. Um, and a lot so- of times, Troy Tesla, like as accurate as he is you might even see him updating his number like if it if it's becoming if it if if it tesla is going to actually surprise then it will become more apparent to troy tesla like in the last like week or two of the course and in the next one or two weeks it would become more apparent to his surveys and he would be updating his his estimate from whatever it is i think he's published like a 250,000 or some somewhere close to that a couple of weeks ago and so if he starts updating it to 260 or 270,000 the next like week or so then um you know he could still you know show that he was right at the end of the quarter but you know he was actually wrong sort of all the way up until now when he's updating it suddenly in the last two weeks to 270,000 so we'll keep an eye on his forecasts and if he's adjusting his numbers because he's usually not that far off at the end of the quarter from where tesla actually reports it he's usually within like 3 to 4% at the most um i think there's been like one or two quarters he's been more off but for the most part he's very close so It'll be interesting to see if he's updating, you know, his uh, his his estimate in the next eleven days or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, because those, you know, he has his historical accuracy. It's like you know, two percent, three percent, one percent, like each quarter. But the, his estimates within the quarter—that's always based on his his final estimate. And his, his yeah. estimates within the quarter can swing pretty dramatically based on how, yeah. how news comes out. So, um, yeah. you know, it's not that you know he he'll give an estimate for. Uh, let's say Q three in three months, or sorry, in in two weeks, and uh, you know that's going to be like within plus or minus two percent. Like there's no. no way he could be that yeah. accurate. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah, and he's
0: done. He, yeah, and to be fair, I think he has disclosed. I can't remember what the rate number percentage is, but he has been. He is. He's aware of that and mentioned that in some of his posts, and he has disclosed his historical accuracy of like his first estimate at the beginning of the quarter to what it actually turned out to be at the end of the quarter, you know, barring all his adjustments. And I forget what that is. It's still pretty impressive, but he's been off more than like 10 or 20%, I think a couple times from that. So, you know, we'll see. Um, And then speaking of uh, Troy Tesla, there was an interesting tweet he put out over, I think the weekend or something. And Jim Chanos actually replied to Troy Tesla, like something about, Um, you know, Jim Chanos is a well-known, you know, skeptic and short of Tesla. I'm not sure if he's still short, but he's historically been very short Tesla and he's famous for being short Enron, I guess, and making a lot of money on that when Enron fell apart. Um, but since then, Jim Chanos has been wrong on a lot of things, um, (laughs) especially Tesla, but he's still committed to the short thesis of Tesla and, you know, and, um, I think a comment he brought up was something about you know with the the uh the, the global or the, the the political risk between the US and China getting escalated with Taiwan especially something about like um all the profits that Tesla is generating from its Shanghai factory you know which obviously we all know is like the majority of Tesla's profits at the moment come from that yeah. um are at risk of Chinese repatriation or Chinese repatriation risk. So China might suddenly say, Hey, everything you're making here in our country, the profits of that have to stay in China and can't be, you know, put in us dollars or whatever. And, you know, that risk, the market, you know, if that, if that happened, you know, then the market would value Tesla very differently, of course. Right. So what are your thoughts on that, Matt? Have you, you, you think that's a realistic possibility ever or, or in the,
1: I I mean, I I think it's
0: unlikely, uh,
1: certainly unlikely in, say, the next, you know, two years. Um, You know, if think, I mean, that would be a a very bold move by by China to, you know, essentially like nationalize a factory or or to uh, not allow for repatriation. I mean, that'd be breaking all sorts of international treaties and uh, frankly, like the the agreement that they had with Tesla when they set up the factory. Um, So they wouldn't do something like that very likely, very lightly. Um, and I think they're, they're probably more prone to, you know, try to steal Tesla's IP and, you know, use it to prop up, you know, the other like Chinese actual, like national EV makers to me, that seems like the type of Chinese intervention that would, that would be more likely. Um, you know, but let's like go with the worst case scenario where like they essentially nationalized the, the factory and, um, you know, that's, it's gone. Um, that would certainly be bad news, especially if it happened, um, like, you know, right now, but, we're looking forward to Tesla, the Tesla of like five years from now, which is what we really try to do for the most part. Um, you know, by that point they're going to have a lot more plants all over the, the world. And so like the, the one and a half million units of capacity that they're, you know, trying to get to in Shanghai, that's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not, you know, like it's 80% of China's or of uh, Tesla's output or anything like that. And yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is like, if they actually solve autonomy, then sure, losing the plant hurts, but it's it's like it's not the sort of thing that's an existential risk to the company. I think, and and so it's yeah. like both unlikely and not as fatal as Chainos would make it out to be, in in my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, it is something to keep an eye on. I think you know just to see if the language, you know, between you know t- Tesla and I mean it, it, the U.S. and China, it's not like two, two people having an argument. It's like two gigantic you know, corporation or two of the largest countries or economic, you know, economies in the world and and countries uh, going back and forth with each other on certain issues like about Taiwan's territorial integrity or the Strait of Taiwan or whatever. That's just one of like a thousand things that they probably disagree on, but there's like a hundred thousand things otherwise that is fine. And like right now, the Tesla production and car companies in China, you know, the business infrastructure between the u.s and china that's working is is working fine you don't have any escalation on that at the moment with anything but who knows if you if yeah, i think trump made a big deal about tariffs on china and made, tried to create a financial kind of um conflict with tesla uh, with china and the u.s and if that type of language comes back in another political election then china might have to react and do something on its end to counteract it so we'll see um, yeah, I mean, they could do something, but like, you kind of think about it from China's perspective.
1: It's like, you know, let's say you could have like 15 billion of margin coming out of that plant down the road. That Like, that's not realistic today. But like, would they risk like, you know, severe, you know, economic issues with the United States for like a $15 yeah. billion like margin plant? I, like, I don't know. It would have to yeah. be part of like a much bigger dispute, I think. And and to me, it's just it it's it smells of like Chano's just moving the goalposts again. Cause he's been wrong about everything for the last 15 years on like everything. Yeah. So, like, yeah, well, yeah, sure. They yeah. built the plants in record speed and it's like 10 times more profitable than I said it would be. And, uh, yeah, like it's there, Tesla's killing it, but, uh, oh, that can't last <laughs> like, it's like China. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know <laughs> it's, uh, it's crazy. So, I guess let's move on to the Q&A. So anyone listening right now or watching live, uh, we started, this is recorded on both Twitter spaces and YouTube live. And we start, the format is, we talked about macro markets. We did some crypto, Bitcoin volatility discussion, talked about Tesla and Elon and Twitter. Now the last uh, you know 15 or 20 minutes, we reserve for just Q&A of everyone. And uh, Alec, our behind the scenes, uh, kind of engineer isn't there, but Matt's kind of helping to post some questions here why he's not there. So first from... Pinnick 0753 uh, on Twitter. Some numbers, Will, a bunch of numbers. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Will slower than expected 4680 ramp affect quality of vehicles? Matt, what do you think? Um, you know, I don't think it's it's going to affect the
1: quality uh, of vehicles because uh, like the, the solution to slower than expected ramp of 4680, uh, like the solution is to to do the 2170 line, which is uh, it, the reports are they're, they're putting in that, that line right now. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it'll affect the, you know, the earnings potential possibly. And, and, you know, the the cars that are going to have the 2170s won't have some of the characteristics that the 4680 cars will have. So that's, you know, to the extent you want to call that a quality of vehicles issue, you you can. But like, I've got a 2170 Model Y right now, and I can tell you, I'm very happy with it. So it's not like the sort of thing that customers are going to demand like a 30% haircut because you got a 2170 car. So I don't know yeah. i i kind of think like I, i'm optimistic about 4680 for sure but i i kind of think tesla bulls put a little bit too much stock in it as like mm-hmm. 4680 is going to like change the company forever and, and to me it's it's like a, mm-hmm. an iterative step in the direction of incremental yeah. profitability lower cost better manufacturing efficiency and it's going to be a great thing once they ramp up to it but we shouldn't be surprised yeah. that it, it takes a long time
0: what do you Yeah, think back when yeah back when they had battery day Tesla was like much less lower valuation than it is now. Maybe like a, I forget what, what, that was like 200 billion valuation or something, or I don't don't recall exactly, but it was a much lower valuation than where it is today. And so the 4680 vision, you could see, oh, the market cap, you know, valuation of this 4680 kind of unit within the Tesla conglomerate could really be instrumental for the stock price to get it to, Five hundred billion or or, you know more, you know, but now that Tesla is you know floating between six hundred billion and a trillion market cap, you know, and full FSD um, beta has become closer to uh, full self driving, um, and we can see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel on that now. um, Then the forty six eighty is still a big deal, but there's other things that are an even bigger deal now, you know, and so I think that's that's the difference. So I'm still super curious and excited about 4680 and the production, how that could change battery production. And it's a monstrous thing, but it's one of many monstrous, you know, units within the conglomerate that Tesla is. It's not the most monstrous that it used to feel like it would become. Yeah. I I completely agree with that sentiment. Yeah. So from Tesla maniac 32 on Twitter, do you think a recession could be a positive catalyst for lemonade as people look for cheaper options in their daily lives? That's an interesting point. Um, That's it's very uh, possible. Yeah, that could be a a nice knock on effect for Lemonade. You know, I think. I really want Lemonade to close this Metro Mile deal as soon as possible and and uh, and get get the uh, car insurance rolled out. It's funny, Jim Chanos, I follow I like to follow the people on Twitter who. I disagree with a lot, you know, and Jim Chanos is one of them. Sometimes I agree with him on certain things. It's funny, but on, on a lot of things I don't in terms of stocks and stuff, but he did put out a quote about mile and, Lem- and lemonade just yesterday, the other day, or he put out a tweet about that, or, or commented on someone else's tweet that he thinks they're both going bankrupt, you know, and uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I reached, I replied with our, our two minute short video. We, we put together on that a while back, but didn't get anything, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's all about the car insurance rollout, and um, I hope they do that sooner than later because, you know, like you, like this question suggests, people are going to look for cheaper alternatives to car insurance. You know, different types of insurance. You know, look for cheaper credit cards. They'll look for cheaper everything to cut costs. I think too. Yeah, I, I kind of don't think it'll be a,
1: a positive catalyst if that if that does happen, but. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, because I think younger people potentially moving back in home with their parents would, would be a negative catalyst, potentially. But um, like that's the, the fact, the, how, how quickly we've seen enforced premium grow has has been pretty remarkable. And so uh, that's that's the thing that I'm looking at most closely.
0: Yeah. For the next question from Angad1357 on Twitter, how low do you think Tesla can go and what are the chances of it decoupling from macro due to rapid earnings growth? I don't think it's going to decouple from macro as long as macro is moving up and down, like it is all together, like 3%, at, a, at a, you know, at least once a week, it seems like maybe it's like 5% every couple of weeks moving up or down together. It's like, you know, it's very volatile. When we get back to the days of the macro kind of being more tight in a tighter bound of like 1% moves per day, you know, um, or less than uh, that's when I think, you know, it decouples and it's more of a stock pickers market in general. Um, What do you think, Matt?
1: Yeah, I kind of agree. We we touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, you know, I I think macros hammered everything across the board and um, I I, I try not to get too specific on like how low it can go in the medium term. But what I like to do is is go out to say 2023 or, you know, somewhere a little bit further out and do like a bear case. Uh, What do I think if, Tesla is not as profitable and they don't sell as many cars and you know, whatever, just put in a bunch of bear assumptions and then put in a bearish multiple on that, then that gives you a certain floor. And then you kind of do a base case and you can do a bull case if you want to. And so that's the kind of analysis I like to do. And I don't necessarily want to share my, my uh, takeaways from those. Cause I think that gets into investment advice territory, but um, you know, it, it makes me pretty comfortable with where we are right now. I would, I would say.
0: Yeah. Next question from Clancy Ryan on YouTube comments matt can you please discuss the stock-based compensation by tesla employees not including elon and the impact of effective dilution that it has uh yeah
1: yeah so it's um essentially everyone's familiar with the stock-based compensation that that package that elon musk had uh where you know essentially he got a large ownership percentage of the company if tesla hit certain operational milestones um but the There's another piece that is going to continue uh, after that CEO compensation plan is completely vested, which is pretty close to right now. I think there might be, I don't know, 50 million or something like that left um, that'll hit the income statement. But, um, you know, normal Tesla employees also get a a slight benefit of some stock-based compensation. So um, I don't remember the exact amount offhand, but it may be somewhere in the neighborhood of like $200 million or so of like a, a book expense. It's a non-cash expense so a lot of times it gets added back to uh, adjusted earnings per share um so pete analysts tend to to back it out um but it is a real expense in that it creates a dilutive effect so if they're let's just assume for sake of of, uh of argument that it's 200 million dollars each quarter uh, that goes to paying employees via stock Uh, well that 200 million dollars has to come from the company issuing new shares so uh, the share count is going to go up, you know, kind of continuously over time. And so as you're valuing the company, you, you need to account for that future dilution. Um, so it's a pretty small amount. I mean, um, when we were talking with Drew Dixon about it, he made a comment of uh, something like it had been, I forget what it was, something like 12% or more le- over the last couple of years. But that was because there was a huge acceleration of Elon's highly dilutive um, uh, stock-based compensation plan. Um, but you know, something in the neighborhood of, you know, a few hundred million dollars each quarter, uh, on a company that has a market cap of, you know, close to a trillion dollars, it's like, you gotta keep that in perspective. Like that's, you know, not a huge needle mover and it's helping you to kind of attract talent that is highly aligned with your mission and and the financial objectives of the company. So in my mind, it's a, it's a cost well worth paying and, um, don't need to be overly concerned about the, the dilution because, you know, you're you're talking about just a drop in the bucket each quarter.
0: All right. Next question from Martin Muldoon. Hello, Martin. Question, any thoughts on the Rocket Lab launch on Saturday? If successo- successful, will it move the stock a point or two? I mean, Rocket Lab is, um, you know, it's getting, you know, for a while I felt like every Rocket Lab launch I was following closely and excited for. But it's almost to the point with like SpaceX where, like, you know, I got a while ago where like every SpaceX launch, you know, it's like, it doesn't, I don't even think about it because it's just like so common. And, and Rocket Lab's not super common yet, but they've had a number of, they haven't had any failures in a long time. Um, and they're like, you know, unless there's something, I don't know, is this launch Saturday? Uh, is it part of like the capstone mission or it's something? The special? capstone moon oh, mission, yeah. So it is an important one. Yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. an important one. I'm not sure, even though it's a, a special mission, I'm not sure it's going to move the stock. I, you know, I, I've seen special, I, I, I mean, they've had some other special missions, the helicopter practice catch. They've had some others that people thought would be like somehow big enough news to move that stock. I'm not sure that uh, there's going to be at one mission that moves that stock. Um, I think it's like sort of a space industry thing. Like people have to start valuing the space industry again and, it's sort of a industry or sector thing. And Rocket Lab will, once people do diligence on that, they'll see that Rocket Lab's cleared number two to SpaceX and it'll be wild. It'll be valued much higher than where it is now. That's my thought. But um, what do you think, Matt? Do you think that this capstone moon mission is going to move the needle for the stock?
1: I, I don't think so. I mean, it's just. We've seen this with Rocket Lab before where, you know, other big missions haven't done anything. So sometimes there's been like an after hours move and then it gets washed away the next day. Um, so you could see something like that. But to me, I, I kind yeah. of I kind of view Rocket Lab as like being in the position that Tesla was in, say, I don't know, 2014. You know, they're yeah. they're not profitable. People don't understand the company. Um and, and it's going to take, like, what ultimately turned Tesla's prospects around for that, you know, long stretch where the stock was just moving sideways was when they finally became profitable in 2019. Um, and mm-hmm. so looking at, like, Tesla, at uh, Rocket Labs, like, financial, um, just efficiency, uh, I, I really see a very clear path where they do that. I mean, they've got a half a billion dollar backlog, and they've got just, like, this threadbare operating expense line, and they're super capital efficient. And I'm like, all right, just give this a long enough... Uh, timeline and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that they're going to get to the point where they're, you know, very profitable. And and then that'll probably happen right around the same time that they're, you know, achieving their long-term mission of like providing satellite based services back to earth, which is going to be like recurring high margin revenue. Um, yeah. so I, I, I think I like, I'm hopeful that the market kind of figures this out sooner. Uh, but in my mind, this is a much longer term play, um, that, you know, you want, you want to just kind of stick around for at least five years and, uh, watch how it pans out. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, maybe last one after this. All right. So this is the last one or one more after this. Um, I think we'll do that one more after this. Let me see if I can. This is the last one. All right. Or one more. All right. From this one is Angad on 1357 Twitter. How do you view leverage in this environment? What percent margin if any are you currently comfortable with um yeah i mean in our fund it's it's risky right our fund is meant to be the risky portion of uh an investor you know our, our investors who invest in mine matt's um discretionary trading so you know it's it certainly uses a lot of leverage through options and such and margin occasionally but we also have stock and you know, we're free to deleverage. It doesn't mean it has to always have leverage on, but, um, you know, we, we try to be a little risky in it. Um, so, but in our personal accounts, I don't know, me personally, my personal account, I've tried my best to reduce all of my margin. Um, and uh, I think I've almost gotten there, but I owe a ton in taxes. So I don't know what that's going to result in. I'm probably going to have to do more. Um, but um, yeah, Matt, what are your thoughts on this? I guess I think, it, you know, if you have a side basket of money that you agree to that you could lose potentially, but be very risky with, then maybe that side basket of money, you know, feel, you know, that's how I always thought of it. I'm very aggressive with it and I'll trade it with margin and leverage, you know, and be prepared to lose it all. You know, just like I go to a casino, I could potentially lose it all, but if it works out, it could be incredible return, you know, but in my main personal investment vehicle or savings, you know, for what I have to live off on, I am not risky with that using margin. What about you, Matt? What do you, th-
1: yeah, I, I've hardly ever used margin. I've, I've used it a couple times here and there, but, um, yeah, just for me personally, like I, I don't sleep well, <laughs> you know, when I'm worried about, oh, what if the stock's sound like 50% tomorrow, you know, I, I just go to these unrealistic scenarios I found. So, um, where mm-hmm. I like to have, um, or where I, or I would say I'm more comfortable having some. You know risky kind of exposure uh is is just through the use of options so like if if you have an option that is itself inherently risky but you know okay i can only lose as much as i put in um that's the kind of you know position that i I can feel pretty comfortable with because i can say all right and i'll i can i I know that you know if i lose if this goes to zero i'm not gonna lose my house i'm not gonna you know have to sell everything So it's very, to me, it's just easier to kind of risk manage uh, options than to, you know, say buy a bunch of stock and and go on margin. So I've never been comfortable with that. I don't don't think I've ever gone over like 10% on on margin. And even that was only for a a short amount of time. Mm. But everyone's different. So it's your own kind
0: of risk reward profile, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that's I think people have to be conscious of with options as well, and uh, we've touched, we've talked about it personally when managing our fund and such, is a lot of the options that people look at for you know the long term options, the leaps, um, you have to be very careful because the spread, bid offer spread, can be very wide. You know, uh, we were looking at one the other day; it was like six dollars and ten cents at the bid, and like. and 20 cents at the offer, you know? So it's like the bid offer spread is like almost half of the option price, you know, like it's like, where do you get filled? Like that's a huge expense. So be very tricky. I mean, very, it's very tricky to cost effectively buy or sell, um, one of those very widespread options, you know? So just be careful on that. Um, that's all I would say. You don't want to get screw yourself out of, you know, by 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 paying 40% more of for a premium option premium that you, you could have saved and bought more of that or bought different options or different companies. using that 40% you, you overspent on that one. Yeah. It requires patience, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
1: so Emmett, I, since I'm in charge of the questions today, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to let you choose. So we've got a question about lemonade's expenses and we've got a question about a potential Eurozone crisis for the currency. Which one should we end on?
0: Uh, lemonade expenses. I think, uh, no more macro. Let's do that. No more macro. Matt, it's for me, but I I think it's your thoughts too. Oh, I, how quickly are you modeling for lemonade's expenses to rise? Do you believe 2022 could really be peak loss? Um, so how I would answer it is I would say, well, you have to talk to my partner, Matt, about the modeling stuff. He's, (laughs) he's, he's big on the modeling stuff for the lemonade expenses. And for a broader, you know, big picture point of view, I do think 2023 or two, I think 2023 could be the the worst year for Lemonade in terms of losing money. Worst case, um, and if if they lose money beyond 2023, my thesis was probably wrong. Um, so if they're losing more money than after 2023 yeah. than they yeah, did yeah. 2023, my thesis is probably wrong. So that that's what I would say. Uh, so Matt, what do you, do you want to kind of go into any de- more details on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with the way that you laid it out. I, I
1: think there's a reasonable chance that 22 is the is the peak loss. It wouldn't surprise me if it if it leaks a little bit into into 23. Um but when I'm modeling this out, it's it's really kind of shocking how big of an impact um you know, the growth and enforced premium per customer uh has on kind of like the peak profitability level. So getting the expenses right, yeah, that's that's definitely important. Um but like the the expenses, like like I've said this on this channel before, but I think it really bears repeating. The marketing that they're doing doesn't make sense for the lifetime value of the customers that they currently have. Like, if you look at the how much enforced premium per customer they have, expected lifetime value, and, and say like a 25% loss or a 75% loss ratio, which means they keep 25% of that, they shouldn't be spending as much on marketing as they are. But what you've seen is that this enforced premium per customer is growing like. Really drastically each quarter, um, which is a really, really good sign. So you've got exponential growth in customers, and then you also have linear to exponential growth in in-force premium per customer. So that tells you that you're you're growing your customers, and those customers are bundling and they're spending more money uh, with you each quarter. So it like changes to that will have a very drastic impact on how quickly or on when they they reach peak loss, uh, and frankly, much more so than you know whether operating expenses grow at 10 or 15% per year, or 25% per year. Um, so I've bundled this out in, in a lot of detail um, and, you know, the expenses, I think they do need to get them under, under control. I'd like to see a little bit like tighter cost management around that, but ultimately if they are success, successful on the top line, the the bottom line won't matter nearly so much. Um, so I guess that, that's how I would answer that.
0: All right. Great. Well, uh, hopefully next week or the week after, we'll do a demo of your uh, model uh, and give some new estimate for Tesla, the Tesla stock, and uh, with some inputs based on what we think um, Q2 production and delivery numbers are. Or maybe we'll do it the week after when we'll probably have production delivery estimates. I maybe mean, we'll do both. I don't know. But uh, we'll, we'll go through Matt's model. Uh, spreadsheet and and show it on the youtube live channel at least and so um let's have some interesting interviews coming up uh we have a round table discussion about raw materials and batteries for tesla and mining and such so we'll uh we'll, we'll put that on our channel when we uh release it when we after we record it um and some other stuff so Everyone, thanks for joining us. This is recorded and it's on our YouTube live channel and our YouTube channel and uh, Twitter spaces as soon as we end it here. So thanks guys. Thanks everyone.